0: The athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. <laughs>
1: It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James and welcome to the show brought to you by the Athletic UK. And on today's episode, it's going to be looking ahead to Saturday's big game against West Brom at the Cottage, second versus third, and surely Fulham's toughest test so far this season. Or maybe it won't be uh, given how much of a spanking Coventry gave us, but we'll have to see. We'll also have a final word on forest from sunday there's going to be a lot of talk about basketball in today's podcast also we're going to be talking about the director of scouting bit of a odd decision uh, it feels like from the club to suspend their search from a few weeks ago so we're going to get the lowdown from peter and jack's opinion of course and i mentioned them now so should probably introduce them jack collins hello hello
2: listeners hello sammy how are we doing
1: Good, thank you. We had a bit of confusion early doors because I thought you were wearing a Sevilla shirt. We, You are famously a Betis fan, so I was quite
2: surprised, but it's a Bilbao top and I got them slightly muddled up. I'm, I'm just doing my best to rep Ben do you know what I mean? So I'm wearing, it's actually an Athletic Club shirt, you know, of Bilbao, but we'll, um, we'll give you it. Can you not say Bilbao? Not really, they don't like it. They don't like it. This is a famous thing that um, there's a big kicking off about them being called Athletic Club. It's a bit like Sporting are uh, not Sporting Lisbon. They're just Sporting Club de Portugal based in Lisbon uh, or Sporting CP, but they hate being called Sporting Lisbon. So therefore, it's a bit similar with Bilbao, Athletic Club or Athletic Club of Bilbao. There you go. I can't, I can't, I can't buy that. Is Why? that. It's like someone calling us Fulham London. Would but you that's like in that? our name. Well, we're called Fulham London.
1: No, we're, we're not Fulham London. They're well, Athletic not, right? Club Bilbao.
2: Yes. Okay, fine. But like there, there's, I mean, you don't, you don't necessarily use all the things. Sporting is supposed is a bit different because they're Sporting Club to Portugal, but people still call them Sporting Lisbon, right? Yeah. But they hate that. So you got to, you got to take it at, at will, right? No, I refuse. Peter Rutzler. Hello. Hello. How are we doing? Good. Where do you
1: stand on not calling Sporting Lisbon, Sporting Lisbon?
0: It's absolutely not Sporting
1: Lisbon. Never has
0: been, never will be.
2: Oh, What? I, yeah. thought be, I thought you'd be. It's team. not their name.
0: Their name is Sporting Club de Portugal,
2: no? Yeah, correct. And yeah. it's like you know, there's lots of clubs in, in in Spain, in Portugal. Rio Vallecano, right? Are actually officially Rio Vallecano de Madrid, but if you called them Rio Madrid, everyone would kick off because <laughs> that's not that like that's not what they're known as. It's the same thing, it
1: Okay, maybe Sporting Lisbon. I was wrong, but Bilbao Athletic Club,
2: Bilbao.
1: I will, I will fight. Okay, you but
2: only if you start calling Rio Vallecano Rio Madrid
1: fine i will <laughs> <laughs> next okay. time we play them i'm gonna break all the rules here all right, i don't mate, care you
2: do what you need to do <laughs>
1: Okay, let's get into the show. Before we start, just to say that if you want to get 33% off your athletic subscription, Christmas is coming, could be a lovely gift to give to someone. Then you can go to theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod. And as I say, you can get your discount on your athletic subscription. And if you subscribe to The Athletic this week, you get a mixture of Fulham and basketball because that's what Peter has written about Fulham's blocking technique from corners. Before we get into that, Peter, let's just discuss the game on Sunday. At Fulham, I still can't understand how we won that game 4 0. It reminds me of the game that we played against Burnley, which I never really wanted to bring up again a few years ago, where we lost 2 1 and they had one shot on target fulham three shots on target four goals it was a masterclass once again in how to be clinical
0: yeah it was a w- it was a weird game it was you, you didn't leave feeling like it was a 4-0 i think you guys covered it quite well on on monday because like even you could hear it from the away end like you, you'd imagine you're 4-0 up against a team that've been absolutely flying you know before kickoff, they're buzzing you know for them it was sort of a Litmus test for where they're actually at, you know, now under Steve Cooper. Um, and they got silenced because <laughs> and then they get battered 4 0. But it wasn't like a 4 0, know, a, a and you're, you're, you're singing and drinking into the night kind of thing. I mean, you probably were, to be honest, but. Yeah, it, was it, Sunday, so, so. It, it was a Sunday. It was a Sunday. The working day began the next day, Jack. Uh, <laughs> you know, working works, week, me. sorry. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was a, it was a weird game. Um, but a very good game from a Fulham perspective. Um, it was one of those that really did threaten to be a banana ski, and particularly when we saw the lineup. Um, I think I, my focus on my, my match piece was on the midfield. I think there was a lot of talk about the midfield beforehand because of how open and fluid it, it looked on paper. Um, and, you know, they came through it really well. Um, Forest didn't actually create very much at all in the end. Uh, for as much as it was a, a close closer game, at least it seemed that way, uh, in, in reality you know Forest were restricted in what they were able to produce I think the XG was below 0.4 um, I always do like to quote that so I apologise basically they they had a few shots but they weren't of any good quality um, whereas Fulham were, were absolutely ruthless as you said Sammy um, a bit of luck to get things going but um, so so clinical and, and once once a game is falling into Fulham's path once they get their their heads up um, they just blow teams away and they, they showed that again and you end up with a Four nil scoreline, thirty-three goals now registered and they just can't can't stop scoring and it's very, very enjoyable.
1: Jack, do you feel like Fulham are back on track? We had that Coventry game, as I mentioned, a few weeks ago, but 4-1 win over our rivals, a fairly routine two-nil win over Cardiff, and then this win over Nottingham Forest. Or have we papered over the cracks? Slightly. I don't feel like we're fully into, right, this team's going to go 25 unbeaten and and go on a, on a long blitz. I feel like there's still a few more stumbles before maybe Fulham get to the engine room, which I still believe we will get to at some point this season and, and get over the line.
2: Yeah, but I mean, you also have to bear in mind that you don't have to go on 25 game unbeaten streaks to win this league. I think you need to pick up about, on average, if if I'm being honest, two points a game, right? So, so that's what we're looking at. I think that sends you up. Two points a game average from here to the end of the season, from the position we're in now, sends Fulham up automatically, I think unless there's a massive change in fortunes or someone goes on an absolute storm, I would suggest that, that is going to be good enough in order to, to take us to the end of the season and will put us into those automatic promotion spots. Now, if you look at that this way and you can go, okay, yes, you can fall behind and do what Fulham have done in the past and go on mad charges, or you can have the occasional blip and win the kind of more routine ones, which is what feels like is happening at the moment. You know, yes, it was potentially a little bit kind, the scoreline on Sunday, but did we deserve to win the game? Absolutely no question. That's what I would argue. There is, there is no doubt in my mind whatsoever that Fulham deserved to beat Forest on Sunday. Whereas if you, you could say the same about the Cardiff game, I mean, it was 2-0. It was pretty comfortable. QPR, there was a little bit, you know, harem-scarrem at times, but Fulham were the better side. And on the whole, I think Coventry aside, Fulham have been a better side in pretty much every game this season. And, and that's a pretty good place to be in, right? Not all games are won by the better side. That's a, it's a simple factor of football, but most of them tend to be. And if Fulham are the team in the ascendancy for the whole season, or at least are the better team for 95% of games the rest of this season, I'm comfortable with that being enough to send Fulham up. And so I'm, I'm a little bit more relaxed than you. Do I think that Fulham are going to win every game from here to the end of the season? No, I hope we do. That'd be great vibes. I'd have a great time. I'd enjoy myself a whole lot more, but I think it's unrealistic, but what you'd look at it kind of separately and you go, okay, do I think Fulham are doing enough right now? If we kept up this kind of level of, uh, Pace, this kind of level of clinicality towards the end of the season, that Fulham will go up automatically. The thing that is weighing heaviest on my mind is that we're going to lose John Mikhail Seri for a month for AFCON. That is right now the thing that I'm most concerned about, about this Fulham side. Well, there's a chance, isn't there, that AFCON doesn't happen? Looks very, very slim now. Um, it, there were genuine concerns about Cameroon's ability to host the tournament, but the CAF have now said that South Africa has been lined up as a backup venue as well. So the chances are, even if it was removed from Cameroon, then it would be just given to South Africa to host at the same time, because I don't think there's going to be enough time in the summer to do it before the world cup. So yeah, yeah, it looks like it's probably going to go ahead.
1: Yeah. I hadn't even thought about the fact that Seri would be missing for such a long time. I guess that's why we have some, uh, uh, squad depth which is which is helpful as well but um yeah that's going to be a really really tricky one to, to get over uh some fag packet maths jack i love doing mid pod maths this is my favorite thing if we got two points a game between now and the end of the season it would be 93 points yep. so yes i
2: think that'd be enough
1: i'm pretty sure that would be enough too uh peter now the athletic is is a is a beast This is a, a big organization both this side and the other side of the pond did you think? at the start of the season that there would be scope for a collaborative article with James Edward, the third who covers the Detroit Pistons for the athletic and Tim Cato, who covers the Dallas Mavericks. No, no,
0: I did not Sammy,
1: but alas, here <laughs> we are. You have managed to do some basketball research into Fulham's corner routine, which has worked three times this season, including on Sunday, Dennis Adoy, This kind of statue defender that um, brought down Worrell, meant that Mitrovic had uh, a free couple of yards in the box to scoop away the corner, which then hit Jed Spence and put Fulham in control of this match. We have talked about this tactic. We briefly referenced it on um, Sunday's podcast. I think the debate there was... Is it legal, and I think we all kind of have concluded that yes, it is, um, even though Steve Cooper protested so um, strongly, but what was your research uh, into into this um, move and and what did Marco Silva and uh, and our transatlantic cousins have to say about it?
0: <laughs> yeah, an unusual uh, piece this week, um quite fun though uh, it was interesting um, reading what the what the guys sent over about about the videos, and they, they really enjoyed doing something a little bit different from from their perspective. But um, it, it's interesting because corners are pretty much the only time you get players in that sort of close quarters like you would get in basketball in terms of spacing, which is probably partly why you, you end up with these sort of scenarios. But um, it's interesting, too, that you guys talked about whether it was legal or not, because that's that's also one big part of it. And speaking to different match officials about it, it's probably not legal. You're probably not allowed to do it um i think in this case because we've been able to look at it and go here are these multiple incidences and it's not just the goals um there are other uh, examples of it during games um it's quite obvious they're doing it deliberately um, and when it is done deliberately then you know it's it's a foul it's impeding it's obstruction um but at the same time if someone's standing still and not looking in a particular direction how how is an official going to tell that this is actually obstruction in the first place and as some of the commenters commenters on the piece have described it's been something going on for a long time but um you know, Fulham have had such a such a high success rate um, in such a short amount of time. that It, it was definitely worth highlighting. We've seen three goals now of the same type, and I think I think people have noticed. There was the the whole City at home game where you you watch Alexander Mitrovic drift in oceans of space inside the penalty area, and you think how how has he found such space? Um, then did the same against Birmingham City this time, Dennis Adoy, who seems to play such an integral role in these corners. Uh, this is why Kenny Tete is not coming back. in. Yeah, this is why he's actually yeah. you know, a real, real key cog in this uh, well-oiled NBA machine. Um, so we obviously scored then. Nat Chalabar that day was playing the role of, um it's called the pick, uh, doing screening. screening. Uh, there, there are basketball turns that I'm not really that familiar with, but. I've learned about screening and anyway, that's what he's doing. He's screening the, the marker. I think it's Jeremy Bella for at uh, the Birmingham game. It was Tosin who takes out Jacob Greaves against Hull. Leaves them both on the floor, which I also found mildly entertaining. And it seems like a lot of the American subscribers and the basketball subscribers are sort of taken aback by how easily players go down. Um but then again they're not getting the decision. So I wonder how else they, they would draw the attention to it. Um but yes, and, and what was also interesting in just going through these videos, looking at Fulham's corners, which is also good fun, because Fulham do have a lot of different routines. Um, it's actually quite a common thing that they, they try to do in different ways. Um, it was very interesting that I think it was Tim that pointed out that such a tactic is far more ineffective against a zonal marking system. Um, and you actually, against the sides that don't deploy such a vigorous man marking, you you see less of it from Fulham. I think there was one incident against Stoke where there's a free defender who will, whose job is to attack the ball. And I think Josh Onomar screened him to allow Dennis, Dennis Adoy loads and loads of space because they were playing a, a zonal marking system. So um, really, really interesting into in why they're doing it. It's really successful. Three goals. Fulham has scored the most from corners overall. They've got five. Um, Marco Silva uh, and his team work very, very, I think very precisely on set pieces. I think it was Alfie Mawson who, who mentioned to me for, for the interview uh, last month, who, who actually picked out set pieces and said they really are drilled on these. Um, and, you know, Fulham are reaping the benefits. Now, it's not something that is it's key part of what's going on at the moment. I think Fulham have got the most open play goals by a considerable margin, but they do help. And those goals in particular for the for the NBA-style deliveries um, their early goals in games, they set Fulham on the right track and that's absolutely key and that's been important all season. And and apparently Marco Silva does like basketball, which I did get to ask him.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I enjoyed it. Honestly, Peter, I, I absolutely loved this article. It was so interesting. And yeah, to be able to get actual basketball experts talking about it was just fascinating. I mean, Jack, from a Fulham perspective, it's just been nice to score some corners. I'm pretty sure Fulham only scored one last season, which if memory serves correctly, was Anderson against Leeds. Yeah,
2: didn't he sort of like chest bump it in?
1: Yeah. um, So it is just nice to see Marcus Silva being so precise with set pieces. I know like George Singer, who we regularly get on the podcast, was tearing his hair out that he felt like Fulham didn't take enough advantage. Considering in the Premier League how, sorry to use the phrase, fine margins it was, it was mad that we didn't try and utilize it more. Look, the championship's a bit easier. Maybe if Fulham had been trying to adopt these tactics in the top flight, we would have not been anywhere near as successful as we are, but it is nice to see Marco and his team being so meticulous. When, as Peter says, we are still scoring so many goals from open play. You could forgive them for not really thinking set pieces are that important.
2: No, but also I think we've seen that there are going to be games where it's hard to break teams down, right? There are there are going to be some teams who can play a very successful low block against us who will dig in, put nine men behind the ball and, and, and just try to frustrate Fulham. Now, most of them at the moment are not succeeding. I mean, if any uh, are succeeding against this Fulham side. But there are going to be days where things just don't quite click, right? And sometimes a set piece is the kind of thing that can change those games and split them wide open. And, and when that happens... It allows Fulham to go on and, well, do what we did at the weekend, right? Who we score a first one from a set piece and then the rest of it, the game blows open and Fulham are able to take advantage of the rest of our chances. And that's so important, I think, in terms of what this division has. And there are going to be days where things just don't seem to be going your way. And one of these, uh, you know, having a dead ball specialist is something very, very similar. So you know, it's, it's just something that can change a game in your favor on a sixpence, especially when things aren't working for you. And I think that that's going to be important for us. I thought maybe one thing that was really interesting, the article was, was phenomenal. And I really enjoyed one of the one of the corners was just like, no, that's just that's just penalty box screening. mate. That's got nothing to do with basketball. <laughs> it was one of my favorite moments in the whole thing. But I think there is a point to be said. Steve Cooper obviously said, we're disappointed with the referee for the first goal. Cooper said, we warned him about the blocks from Fulham set plays, which accredited them as they do it really well. It's a clear foul by a door and he's looking straight at it. Well, he's not. For one, he's not looking straight at it. And two, if you've warned the referee, warn your players, deal with it. Like it, it, it's, it's a game of chess in so many ways. And obviously a set piece is, is one of those strange things you can look at as almost like a, a free play in itself. It's something that stands alone and has a separate starting point as opposed to being in transition it's all one thing warning the ref about it. It's another thing being like, look, they're going to try and do this, avoid it because you know this is what they're going to try and play at. And if that means standing in front of your marker rather than letting someone get between you, then fine, so be it. But, you know, there there's teams are going to have to get to grips with it. I'm sure the teams will, right? I'm sure there will come a point where another manager will look at that and go, hmm, how do I deal with that? And how do I, you know, make sure that it doesn't happen to us? It will happen. I'm, I'm intrigued though as to one thing that you might have thought, Peter, and at the start of this year when we were talking about Marco Silva, we were talking about that <laughs> Everton size weakness from set-pieces, were <laughs> we not? Uh, and we've turned into set-piece kings. Yeah, it's that
0: really striking contrast. It was, it, speaking to, I think, Paddy Boyland, who covers um, Everton for us at The Athletic, and he was talking about Marco Silva because set-pieces came up a lot during, you know, the second season when things weren't going particularly well. They were conceding goals a lot from those dead balls. Um the general sense was they were working hard on set plays, like really, really hard to try and rectify it. And it was something that Silver was aware of, and they just couldn't seem to, to get a grips with it. Um, clearly, they're doing, doing similar at Fulham in an attacking perspective, and it's, it's, it's definitely paying off. And what's, what's interesting is every team's going to work at set plays, every team's going to be trying to do that. And when you speak to players, one of the most boring aspects of the game. Is doing the set play routines in training. They are so boring. They are long. It's a lot of shadow play, lots of movement. It's not much fun. So when you actually get players that buy into it, players that actually get into it and enjoy it, and then actually a revo- and getting re- results, that's actually quite a step up. That's actually quite difficult. And it was, you know, I know this one of the things with these blocks is oh, it happens all the time. People blocking people all the time in football. It does, but when you're actually putting it off with such regularity, it's actually quite unusual because it is very effective and it shows that the players are sort of buying into it and and as Jack says it makes it is really really good edge to have in games and um, I, I imagine teams will start coming up with plans to deal with it as Jack says you know it's one thing warning the ref you've got to plan yourself I think the zonal marking thing is really interesting because you can't do it with a zonal system you just you can't do this sort of man marking and blocking a marker off um, so it, whether that maybe sees more teams playing in that sort of way against Fulham we, we will see but technically it is technically it is illegal like you can't you can't do it unless you're very subtle. And Fulham have been subtle enough in games so far to get away with it.
1: I guess the good thing is, look, obviously teams will be, have spotted it. If if if, if we've spotted it, yeah. then opposition scouts will 100%. But I guess the benefit is if teams are looking so hard for the block, what can Marcus Silva and his team come up with next? Because they might be concentrating so much on who's going to block my run that actually Fulham can come up with something else that well, their attentions elsewhere. Anyway, fingers crossed if so. And uh, it's certainly been nice this season. And there's a lot of debate in in the football world, obviously with Man United and, and their tactics and the kind of latcadaisical approach of Oli Gunnar Solskjaer compared to the meticulous approach of the of the big three managers in the league. And actually it just shows that it's that work on the training pitch that in the end pays off. And look, at Fulham managed to get an extra Four or five goals from set pieces last year. I'm not saying Scott Parker didn't work on it, but clearly the fruits of Marcus Silver's labour have been evident. Maybe that keeps Fulham a lot closer than we are. We'll never know, but certainly it is one to ponder on.
0: One other thing to to mention as well um, is the fact that Fulham have some really good set play takers. Uh, like that's it's quite unusual how strong Fulham's repertoire their their Arsenal is in this area. Like Harry Wilson, for one, is a fantastic dead ball specialist. Separate topic, but he really should be taking some free kicks. Like oh, my his God. Record, is, is in, why was Mitrovic taking a free kick at the I weekend? I have no idea. Well, uh, I mean, that's pulling ranked and then some. I mean, Harry's got to step up there because he he has a fantastic record. We all know about Niskins Cabano as well. Um, then and then he can Jean, take him as well. And Jean-Michel Serry, Jean-Michel Serry. I mean, even with those three, aside from free kicks, but on corners, the deliveries have been very, very good. It's a really important factor. I mean, you can do all the work you want, but if you haven't got someone to whip the right cross in, it makes all the
2: difference. And Kenny can take a corner as well. Not oh, that he yeah.
1: ever does because he wants to stand on the edge of the box. Yeah, and but now he can on
2: stand on the edge of the box and that's absolutely fine. And I'm yeah. okay with that.
1: But Kenny is an underrated corner taker. I I was disappointed for Niskins because he got his free kick in the position that he wanted against Cardiff. He just came up against the most man mountain team that there is.
2: <laughs> also, he did the weirdest run up I've ever seen and I was like, nope. Well, what is this? The like really aggressive steps." I was like, "Nah, Nieskens you didn't <laughs> used to do that. You should just take a normal step up and whip it in." I was like, "I don't like this new I don't like this new run up, mate."
1: Niskins needs to be more carefree. Is that is that yeah, what you say? Yeah, I saying? think so. Just a little he's, bit more off o- the cuff. He's overthinking it. Whereas he's to Johnny three-
2: Wilkins in it, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, don't, I don't need that.
1: No, I'm glad you brought up. Why was me? I, I mean. I love Mitrovic, but I I mean, I mentioned about penalties, which was maybe a bit harsh because actually I've watched that back. It wasn't a terrible penalty on on Sunday. No, the penalties thing was not harsh.
0: We've talked about it last year. Mitrovic's record from penalties is not good. Like I, I I mean, we've pointed it out before and maybe he's changed his technique. It looks like he's, he's, when he's on a scoring streak, you can't argue with it. But, but the history tells you that his record isn't great. So it wasn't like your misgivings are out of place. I don't, that's what I would say.
1: Free kicks, Mitro, get off them, all right. Just stand <laughs> in the wall and hope for a rebound. Please, what if he mate? bangs one in a weekend? Now <laughs> he's definitely going to score one. I he? won't celebrate. I'll, I'll, I'll. <laughs> in um, in solemnness, I will, I will not celebrate because I don't deserve to. After calling him out like I just did, and um, Peter, what did you make of the midfield combination on Sunday? That was another thing that your piece um was on earlier in the week with the with the Seri any partnership it was well documented that it didn't work too well back in the Premier League I thought it worked well enough on Sunday of course it did we, we won the game 4-0 I, I've reservations about it if it's that going forward but I don't think it will considering if Harrison Reed is back I think he gets into the team also almost automatically anyway but it worked well and I'm just I'm just happy to see TC back on the pitch yeah,
0: I, I think the, the main takeaway I had from it was that it was reassuring that Fun could play that free and still come away with a good result. Obviously, it was a, an incredible result in terms of the scoreline, um, but they were still able to do it. And I think the big worry was that they would just get overrun. Um, factors in the game helped, obviously an early goal. Jack Colbach yellow card, I think, was really important that he got booked so early. It was a really stupid tackle, but that really sh- like changed his game uh, and probably the dynamic of that midfield a little bit. Um, but the the fact that as a free, you you've got two very much playmakers in there. And then Deca who is a goal scorer, um, and they were still able to be pretty solid, um, as we were saying before, earlier in the pod, like Forrest weren't able to create that much. Um, their success was coming in wide areas. They were generally going around them. There was um, They didn't really go through them. Tom Kenny was quite disciplined. Um, he, he, he sort of tucked in alongside Seri. And as you say, one of the big talking points was Seri and Kenny. can they do it? Um, brought the up brought this up with silver last week he sort of acknowledged the fact that this is you know this is a thing like they are similar kind of playmakers their profiles are similar, and they can 't do things that Nathaniel Chalaber can do and Harrison Reed can do um so i th- I think in general when everyone 's fully fit you 're probably not going to see that kind of balance that often i don 't think at least with a decade over reed in there as well you 're going to get you 're going to need someone who 's got that energy or that dynamism to do the the less pleasant stuff in in, in midfield like, like Matt Chalamer and, and Harrison Reed and um but when, when they were forced to use it, they were able to do it. And I think that's that's pretty pretty encouraging. And if Tom Carey's played deep. It's not it's not a question of saying can't play deep. They can't do the defensive stuff. Um it's just whether it's the most effective in the yeah. in in the formation that they are playing.
1: It could help that dover Reed is quite a disciplined player as well and can do a little bit more defending from the number ten. I think if you were playing Carvalho, Seri and Kearney, then there's dangers. I mean, nothing against, I mean, Carvalho actually does put in yeah, I was say, as, as well. It's just but, a little bit
2: lightweight, isn't it? Yeah, that's, yeah.
1: that's
0: the big thing. It's just having that bite. Um, de over, does work hard. We've seen him. Versatility is fantastic, but you, you want someone who's more natural with a bite. I mean, with, these are like a variation of first world problems in championship football terms. I feel. <laughs> like <laughs> This is, this, this is the minor time that we're getting into. Um, um about problems that Fulham have because it's you know, having yeah. that midfield is
1: is pretty good <laughs> first world championship problem sums it up brilliantly uh Jack uh, your thoughts on on Sari and Kearney other than it's just vibes
2: yeah I, I enjoyed the vibes though so it was fine look I mean <laughs> like Peter says we didn't really get pushed through the middle now whether that's because we had so much control of the game and, and control of the ball or just that that wasn't for his strategy is is one thing right if someone comes at us at the weekend and we're playing that same thing again, then perhaps that perhaps West Brom would, would be more of a a test for those two. But I think you're absolutely right about Bobby Reed. And, you know, actually him tucking in as playing almost as like twin eights with, with Kenny, I thought, and and, and for, for periods of the game, being able to just play as like a real three rather than a four, two, three, one, um, allowed us to just you know, sail through it without too many problems. And, and, you know, that callback booking, as Peter says, absolutely massive in just in terms of there not being too much bite in the middle of the field all the way through the game. And actually it being something that Fulham were able to just play through, play through the phases. And when you have two passes of the ball as good as Kearney and Serry in there, you're always going to find some joy. So I think that's probably the the important thing. As you know, I would just reiterate, I probably wouldn't be playing those three in the middle if everyone was fit and this was a, championship playoff final um but ultimately for the best part of you know almost every single one of those players would start for almost every other team team in this league and i think that's important to remember as well so let's be grateful for the the vast array of gems that we have in in the middle
1: yeah indeed right we'll take a quick break and then afterwards we've got a few questions about this director of scouting business part two of the Fulhamish podcast Sammy James here I'm joined by Jack Collins hello listeners and Peter Rutzler hello and um, Peter uh, I've been promising uh, listeners to ask you about this for a couple of weeks uh, the news that came out from the Fulham supporters trust that that uh, The club have suspended their search for a director of scouting. Uh, It was kind of buried at the bottom of the FST's notes from October. And, And here's the words... Further to previous meetings, discussions on the appointments of the director of scouting, the trust asked for an update on when it was anticipated they would be in post. The club said that this is currently on hold and an update will be communicated if there are any developments. You then kind of release the story. and, And then from your knowledge, this is because the club are happy with how things are. Didn't sound great. And my alarm bells are fully on
0: yeah um obviously, we've talked a lot about this position because it came out uh, in may um the, we've known that it was in the interview process. we talked about that um and it did just just seemed to drag on. um I didn't have the impression that it would be scrapped. I don't have that impression at the moment, but judging from the wording and the current situation as it is there's there's no urgency at all to appoint this position now. um you know initially, I think it was supposed to be. Uh, a role that was on a sort of a, a senior part was seen as an integral role i think um taking over some of the scouting responsibilities or day-to-day operational stuff that that tony Khan can't do um while not necessarily impinging on what uh chief scout brian talbot does um now obviously this has come out with the in the ft F- fst notes um and my sort of well, I'm speaking to different people about it was on the on the basis you say, Sammy, that there's no urgency to, to fill the role. There's a there there is contentment at the structure. And that contentment stems more from the fact that one, the summer transfer window went quite well. Marco Silver's quite happy with how things have gone. He's got a good working relationship with Tony Khan at the moment, and there's no sense that they need to change anything at this point. Um I think when we look back at last season and when this position came into being, and we saw that there was a job advert, wasn't there, that was public. Uh, both on you know private job centers and obviously LinkedIn as well that we all saw um that um you know we were, this was under scott Parker's management and Scott Parker had made it very clear that he wanted structural changes he would made those comments in, in, in to to us in the media and, and it was evident behind the scenes as well since that time we've had a new new manager come in and it's clearly not a, a priority um I, I think what I would say is it's not something that would be written off and it'd be interest, interesting to see if it does. During this process, like there have been candidates, people have been interviewed for it. Um, it's just something I'm aware of. Uh, I don't know what the situation is with them, but it'll be interesting to see how that sort of plays out going forward. It would, It looks like, if you're going to say it's on hold, it looks like it's been paused for a decent amount of time.
1: I mean, Jack, I, I said it on Sunday's podcast that I feel like I'm watching a car crash in six months slash a year's time I'm, I'm baffled by this decision. We've talked at length about how clearly Tony Khan does not have the time to probably a proper director of football in the modern conventional sense seems to kind of be pulling it together with transfers. But I just fear that with this decision, it's going to be short termism, short termism, short termism. Maybe that's our strategy. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I can appreciate that. It's a, it's a really tricky one because obviously without full knowledge of how the structure was working and how this person was actually going to fit into the structure at the top of the club, it's hard to know the effect that not having a director of scouting is going to have, right? and And so therefore, I suppose it depends on whether we believe the... We believe the concept that Marco Silva spoke about earlier in the season that he had a, a major, major voice in what these transfers were, right? And what the what the transfers in the summer were about. The players that were brought in, a lot of them, is, you know, you look at Rodrigo Muniz, for example, and you look at that and you say, Silva said, this is a player I want, bring them in. Now, we haven't seen huge amounts of that over the last couple of years. So maybe that's a change in the dynamics of how this relationship works between the hierarchy of the club the management the players etc etc so at this point you i agree with you in that i think short termism is the order of the day um and i think that it's a little bit worrying because you know what we're seeing at lots of other clubs and what you know what we're seeing at clubs that tend to not have these problems are uh, is someone who has an overarching vision of the players they want to bring in for the club and the manager should slot into that vision rather than the other way around now there is Plenty of people who argue that's the wrong way to run a club because it's a very new school way of thinking. But ultimately, I think that we're seeing in in, in the kind of likes of Liverpool or, or Manchester City or even Chelsea, a lot of the Bundesliga clubs, Leipzig, Atalanta, Ajax, Dortmund, the clubs who are batting above their weight You know, they're teams who tend to have a long term vision, the kind of players they're trying to bring in and then use that to attract the right managers for them. Now, I'm not stupid enough to think that Marco Silva will be the manager at Fulham for the next 10 years. If he continues to succeed, I hope he is. But I don't think that that's going to be the case. And so ultimately, you're looking, I think, as a fan to try and bring in a long term structure that allows Fulham to develop in a way that whoever the next manager is, they have the best crack at doing the whip as well. And, and so I suppose, ultimately for me, it's, it's a disappointment. But at the same time, there are plenty of people who were angry at the fact that the manager wasn't getting to bring in the players that they wanted in the first place. And so I imagine this would be music to their ears.
1: Yeah, I think, is it maybe a question, Peter, that not every club can be the Moneyball club. We've, we've certainly tried to go down that road. It doesn't feel like Fulham do anymore. Of course, we look at players stats. Uh, we're not there just, just picking players out of thin air, but it does feel like a, a culture change at Fulham in the way that we do recruitment. I think we were trying to be the new Brentford or maybe Brentford were trying to be the new us. I don't know, but we were certainly trying to go down this, the stats, stats, stats model. It feels like now that there's a shift, But then again, I'm happy with all of our transfers, barring a couple for the last three or four seasons. So maybe I just need to shut up and get on with it. If we keep having good transfer windows like we have, maybe last January wasn't great, but Josh Madger was okay. Didn't keep us up, of course. Maybe that's the future that we have to get used to as a football club. Is it trying to find our identity? I think is is, uh, that's the thing I'm confused about. I don't know what it is anymore.
0: Yeah, it was interesting you mentioned January. I was thinking about Josh King in the week. Obviously, he scored a hat-trick at, at Everton and barely played. And I do wonder if they, if Fulham had actually managed to get that over the line last January. Yeah.
3: Maybe
0: things have might have been a, a little different. But um, no, I I don't think it's a case of trying to be... Every club needs to try and be, not a moneyball club, but needs to be looking at these things. They need to be um, buying efficiently, uh, harboring the right sort of identity, knowing who they are and what their structure is. Because... It's becoming fiercely competitive, um, and the very best team. And if you want to be at the highest level now, especially when you're trying to bridge that gap, I mean, you look at Norwich and they're just getting pummeled every week. Um, you know, they, they have an identity, though. To be fair, they do have an ident. They do have an identity. Yeah, I'm not not saying that at all. But if you want to actually bridge that gap and then as and reach the sort of level, I mean, Jack, you highlight some some very high end clubs there. But if you want to get to that point, you you do need that that structure. And may, uh, there has been change. There has been change, and, and that's where probably your. You probably feel that sort of. I don't really know what the identity is, Sammy, and I think that's completely fair. I think when when this came out, the assumption was it was going down this maybe a different route, and um, there was always that uncertainty about how much sway this role would have. Um, but now that it's not happening, it, it, you can see why some people think it was just sort of a not a paper target, but just just something that was put up to as a deflection tool. And and to be honest, we the new managers come in, there has been that change, and I, I you know Marco silva has been pretty unequivocal in terms of his role in these transfers, he's been pretty down, down the line with it. If you ask him, you know, what, what was your involvement with the transfers? What, what do you think of the transfers? He, he takes, he owns, owns them. Um, Harry Wilson, Paolo Gazzaniga, um, Rodrigo Muniz, as, as Jack was saying. And, and some of these transfers may not necessarily have been transfers that would have got over the line. At least that's the impression you would have from the outside um, on the basis of Fulham's previous recruitment requirements. Um, but look, time will tell. Um, I think Fulham's priority, from my perspective, at least looking from the time of cover the club, is trying to use their academy in the most efficient way. Um, the academy is the strongest asset. Um, there's been those changes in the summer. Hugh Jennings has got that new role. Um, that's going to take a little bit of time to start reaping any kind of rewards. But it would be interesting it, how much sway that will have, particularly going forward in terms of where Fulham want to be, because at finding that balance between having an elite academy and recruiting efficiently in the first team is really important, and they don't think they've managed to get that right as yet. So that's that's the next thing. But as you, as you say, like the recruitment last couple of seasons has been good. It's just a question of time. But we get to the Premier League, and suddenly we end up with a situation where there's delayed transfers or whatever. Um, and then this this debate, it's almost like delaying it for for six months. So don't get the impression that it's been scrapped, but. You know, I mean, it does not exactly positive signs, is it, to say it's suspended without a, a time frame
1: just won't they think of the podcasters I'm just literally thinking about me 12 months time miserable because we've lost our first five games in the Premier League and everyone's sniping at each other anyway uh, talking of transfers that maybe haven't worked recently we've got a question here from Dan Arez, um about Loftus Cheek Jack and he has been back in the uh, the team up the road uh, mm. he got a couple of assists he probably could have got a goal against Norwich at the weekend I mean anyone could have got a goal against Norwich at the weekend from the way that the Norwich played. Um, had he not actually been quite unselfish and and passed it to uh, Mason Mount in the final minute of the match, and then Loftus Cheek did a video recently saying, "I always plan to come back to Chelsea," and a lot of Fulham fans thought that this was just a bit, a bit off.
2: Yeah, I did like it
1: the way he said it. So Dan asks, do you think that he consciously sandbagged his season with us? Um, and do you think Silver would have put up with RLC's mediocrity?
2: My answer to this is usually the same. So I, I don't think at any point players, like, you know, with, with the occasional real out of left field exception, I don't think players ever don't try, right? And I don't think Ruben loftus didn't try with us. And I came to this conclusion sort of midway through last season, I spent a lot of time saying it, that, that everyone's like, oh, he doesn't even try, he walks around. He's a languid footballer, right? It's, it's how he plays the game. He, he's not a player that's going to put in 100, 100 kilometres on the pitch. And even if he did, you wouldn't know it because he runs around like he's sort of loping about. Um, what I do think is that he consciously managed himself in that if something was a stretch, if there was a ball that was a bit too high for him, he wasn't jumping, you know, with, with full capacity. He wasn't stretching at full capacity. He wasn't putting himself on the line at full capacity in terms of tackles and bodies. And, and that's because he's had an injury, right? And, and I can appreciate that for his kind of sake, let's put, you know, take, take all things aside for now and just put it as a kind of, you know, him as a person and an athlete, was trying to make sure that he was brought back to full fitness over the course of an extra season. Now, on the surface, that's fine. Yeah, on the surface, there's no problem with that. The problem with that comes when you're in a relegation scrap. It's sort of bodies on the line. You know, everybody is trying their damned hardest. And, you know, you see Mario Lemina's interview the other week, for example. in in the athletic and you read that as a kind of counterpoint. You know, you know, we were putting it in every single day. We were putting in every time when the pitch, it just wasn't working for us. You look at Mario Lamina and go fair play. You've done everything you possibly could to try and keep Fulham in the, in, in the premier league. And when it didn't work out, you go on your way and everyone goes fair play, Mario wish you the best of luck. You know, you know, you go with good grace. If Mario Lamina ever comes back to the cottage, he will get a hand, right? You know, he will he will be given a, a clap. In the same way that Steph Joe, obviously in a much longer capacity, you know, come down to the Hammersmith end last week and was given a standing ovation pretty much. Now, obviously there are certain levels to this, but you get what I'm getting at. And then you flip that and you go, if Loftus Cheat comes back now after that, has he put in everything he possibly could have to keep Fulham in the Premier League? No. And therefore, were there things in that contract that meant he had to play, even when there were players who would have put themselves on the line? to be in that position, possibly. And that's, I think, what makes people upset, that the deal was done with such haste and in in such a way that it felt like towards the end of the season, Loftus-Cheek was playing, even though there were players who were willing to put in the shift, which he wasn't willing to do in the same capacity. Not that he wasn't trying, but that he was working at let's say 85% rather than 100 because of that concern with injury. And I think that's what makes things most upsetting, right? It's that someone could come out and say all those things and you go, you didn't put it in. You didn't put it in. And Chelsea fans would be singing around now and going, oh, yeah, well, it doesn't matter. It was only Fulham. And I remember, you know, quote tweeting something a couple of weeks ago and there was someone saying, oh, everyone owes Ruben Loftus-Cheek an apology. Quote tweeted saying, Ruben Loftus-Cheek owes the Fulham fan base an apology. And I think, you know, their response was the, the kind of Jeremy Clarkson going, oh, no. Anyway, um, it was, you know, and, and that's how I imagine how Chelsea feel about Fulham quite a lot of the time. But ultimately, it does matter to Fulham fans. And it matters in the grander scheme of things when you want to be weighed in the balance. And can someone come and say, oh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek did his best through his entire career? I don't think they can now. I don't think they can. So I think at any point you can go, and if Fulham fans wish Loftus-Cheek ill, I'm not saying that I do, and I'm not saying there are plenty of things, but if people would do, potentially in their rights to say things like that after he has comments like those.
0: During the season that, that Loftus-Cheek had, um, and you reflect on it and what he was actually able to contribute during that, during that campaign, yeah, I completely sympathise with Jack. I think on the basis of the expectations that everyone had, Loftus-Cheek did live up to them. Um, I think there's, there's, there are elements to it. I've, I've never been able to stand up the idea that he um, had to play. Um, I can't say that it's not true, but I've not been able to uh, prove that. But w- one of the most interesting things about his current renaissance at Chelsea that we're seeing, you know, the fact that he's come into, back into Thomas Ducal's team, uh, he's playing well, he's getting assists. Um, uh, just from a basic tactical point of view is the fact that he's playing deeper. Uh, I think we talked about it last season um, throughout the, the year actually and um, he, he himself mentioned that his favourite year at Chelsea was under Maurizio Sarri when he played in a deeper role um, and we didn't really see that at Fulham. Um, he, would, he would often play in that 10 position almost as if to try and get him closer to to the front line that just wasn't producing enough goals um, and ultimately it's interesting because when whenever I spoke to people about Loftus-Cheek there was always this sense that we, we, there is that quality there. We're just not seeing it on a match day. And Scott Parker and his staff spent a lot of time working with him, um, probably more so than, than other players too um, at times, to try and get that best out of him. And there was, I think there was a feeling among some that he didn't really have. Like his confidence was affected by some of the misses because some of the misses were, were pretty big. But then at the same time, you look back and you see the comments he's made now and it, they're going to great. It's almost, there's a lack of um, awareness around it. Now, the same, you have to think from his perspective, he wasn't the most popular character for quite some time at Fulham, um, particularly in the second half of the season. Um, I think there were a lot of opinions were set quite early um, with him and maybe that that's played into it a bit. Um Either way, he was brought in as a, as a marquee signing and it didn't work. And it was one of the key, key factors, I feel, you know, it, those goal those chances that he did miss for Fulham in some of those big games, I think it was Brighton, Man United had two great chances. There was another one as well, that just escaped me. But um, th- those key moments were, were were massive for Fulham. In the season of, as Sammy uh, caveated earlier, fine, inverted commas, uh, fine margins. Um <laughs> It mattered. It did matter. Um, And and when when Fulham fans see him doing well now, you think, well, why can't can't you reproduce it here? And I I think there are a lot of different elements to it. Um, And that injury side to him, whether or not he's fully committed, I don't know. I never like to say that Blair didn't try. I don't always
2: buy into that. No, Um, I agree. Um, um, I think, look, there was an article... There was an article, Peter, in The The Athletic about his kind of revival. And I think Simon Johnson spoke to a couple of sources. One of them said going to Fulham didn't go the way he wanted, but he got what he needed from it, playing games. It was about him finding his feet again. He was fit, playing and training every week. That was massive. He said, "You have to remember, suffering a ruptured Achilles is one of the worst injuries you can have. It, you know, it just happened. It plays on your mind. You're going to wonder every time you twist, turn, or jump, is something going to happen? But over the season, he got confident in how his body felt again at Fulham. He got stronger and stronger. That's never going to rankle nicely, right? Is that he got what he needed? Fulham were relegated, but he got what he needed. So, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter then, does it? No. And that's no, that's exactly. that's, that's, pay- that's painful to accept as a Fulham fan, I think." No,
0: exactly. Exactly. And, and you, that was one of the, 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 the first sort of caveats we had, wasn't it, last year? It was like, is this a season just to rehabilitate him? Now, at the time, you know, he, he had something to play for. He had the Euros, but he, if you, from his perspective, he had something to play for. Absolutely. Not just in terms of, yeah, oh, I wanted, wanted to get back to Chelsea. Fine. One, his career and the competition at Chelsea was huge, but he also wanted to get into that England setup.
1: I guess that became a point where actually he couldn't do anything here. Whatever, even if he had the most miraculous 10 last games of the season and kept us up, he won't get into the Euros. He was probably getting back to Chelsea anyway. So why did it matter? Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll move away from, um, I feel like I've brought up um, bitter, long lost memories with that Burnley defeat and then RLC in this podcast. So apologies. Thanks, yeah. We'll be, yeah, we'll be looking ahead in the next section to West Brom on Saturday. Three of the Fulhamish podcast is Sammy here with Jack and Peter. Now on this podcast, we've stopped recently doing too many opposition previews. I think ultimately, do you really care to hear 15 minutes on how Hull season's gone? Maybe you do, but maybe not on this podcast. However, I think when matches are as big as they are on Saturday, getting an opposition preview is well worth it. Uh, and I spoke to the awesome Louis Bent from the Baggies podcast, and started off by asking him how the last couple of weeks have been for the Baggies.
3: Definitely up and down. Definitely up and down is is something that I'd use to describe the past couple of weeks uh, of Albion action. Really, I think last week was was a complete summary of Valerian Ismail's reign at West Brom so far we've had a a 2-1 loss at Swansea City which is probably the worst performance of the season no hope of getting a victory really in that game and then all of a sudden going on to Bristol City a fantastic win best performance of the season it it was a complete uh, contrast uh, week for Albion fans so I think that that really summed up Valerian Ismail's reign so far and it was a very interesting week but glad to at least end it on a high even though the the midweek game didn't really start to kick it off in the right fashion. I'll say
1: I'm fascinated by the style of play of Valerian Ishmael. He was someone linked with Fulham over the summer. I think when we think back about it, Fulham have always tried to be a passing possession heavy team. I'm not sure Ishmael's style would have worked with ourselves. Um, The style of play he had at Barnsley was pretty mad. But from what I can tell, Ishmael has maybe reined in slightly at West Brom. I I saw like, for instance, your first goal against Bristol City on Saturday. That's a really nice passing move. I think maybe people have this conception that your long throws and nothing else. I mean, your second goal was a long throw. You still do that too. But is it not quite the full val ball that uh, you guys maybe were... Not fearing, but expecting at least.
3: I think from watching Barnsley last season, the high press was such a huge thing and just constantly running around. I think that was in place for probably the first three or four games of the season for Albion. But I think going through it's kind of died out a little bit I'm not sure whether that's under tactical instruction or just the fact that you know the players will get get shattered by the end of the by the end of playing playing so many games of that style I think it's been it's been quite difficult to be honest seeing that seeing um that press sort of fade away because it was so effective in those first few games especially against Bournemouth who are a team that like to play their football and it was quite interesting to see how that worked but yeah it's kind of faded away recently and kind of the long ball has been sort of drafted out in a couple of games recently, the Bristol City one game being one. We did bring it in for the Swansea game, the more direct style of play, and it didn't really work. But we've especially in the Cardiff game and and, and obviously this one against Bristol, we've we've kind of reined it in, as you said, and just tried a bit more of a, a shorter passing game, which I think is is far more effective against teams that are going to try and be physical and going to try and beat you in the air, which is something that we can't do against teams like Cardiff, the the Millwalls and even Bristol City to some extent. Uh, I think raining it in is definitely something that's been good for us so far and and definitely something that that's worked especially in those two games I've just mentioned there a 4-0 and a 3-0 win I think that certainly indicates to 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 Val that that's something that needs to be done from time to time to to just to just mix things up a bit really
1: Uh, and i'd be interested to know about your away form it's been pretty pretty patchy of late you had the defeat at swansea the defeat at stoke you did win at cardiff although they're in free fall uh, a draw at preston and even against peterborough you won in the last minute but it it Mm. took a last minute goal to to beat peterborough why do you think it is that west brom seem to be struggling away from home because at home your records not far off flawless really yeah, at
3: home it's been been fantastic as you know, Ismail. I was really confused when he came into the club. He was constantly driving this thing about making the Hawthorns a fearful place to visit and things like that. And he's certainly done that. I couldn't quite grasp why he kept saying it over and over again because I thought that's so, surely something that every manager would want to implement at any club wherever they're going. But he kept saying it and he's certainly done that at the Hawthorns. Away from home, it's been a bit weird. I think we've sort of gone onto a team's turf. We've tried to be sort of a bit of more of a nastier side when we go away from home and it just... Just hasn't quite worked because obviously teams have got their fans behind them now. After you know having the fans back in the ground, teams have got their way of playing, and we we found it quite hard to disrupt that away from home. At home, I think it's been quite easy. Really, teams are coming in, wanting to play a bit more, a bit deeper, and and we've kind of we've kind of. um, you know, planned for that and, and got through it. But I think away from home, we've just we just kind of struggled to to break down teams and, and disrupt their own style of play. Uh, where at the Hawthorns, we, we kind of tried to set the tempo really. And we seem in control quite a lot at the Hawthorns, but away from home, we just seem to, the other team always seems to have a little bit of an edge on us. It's it's a bit of a weird one, but yeah, I think home form is definitely something to be pleased, pleased about. Away form is definitely something that needs to be looked at.
1: Well, hopefully the uh, away hoodoo continues from uh, a <laughs> Fulham point of view on Saturday. Um, Ishmael made a bit of a tactical tweak for your game against um, Bristol City. Uh, what exactly was it that he that he changed? Yeah,
3: it was it was it was more the shorter passing, as, as, a, as I mentioned there is it, it was kind of just just reining in this long ball against a side that were really strong in the air obviously you look at their back, their back line very very big guys just like they were when we played Millwall I think it was just reining in that sort of long ball and that, that more direct style of play because we made that mistake against Millwall Derby, Preston and, and it didn't go well that's three draws on the bounce and that was quite a a dark sort of a, a dampened period in the season really where we look to be potentially dropping out of the automatics and, and falling away really from y- yourself and Bournemouth. So I think, yeah, I think reining it in and and kind of just changing things about a few little tweaks. I think obviously coming in against Bristol City, there were two midfield, cha- well, two, two different midfielders coming in. Obviously, Livermore's Suspe- was suspended for that particular game after accumulating the the five yellow cards, and then obviously Alex Mowat was injured uh, the week before. And Malumbi and Snodgrass came in, which I was I was very skeptical about Snodgrass. It's, it was his first start since last February, and he was a, a real revelation. It was so nice to see a player with experience just put his foot on the ball. Quite often this season, the midfield's been bypassed. The ball's just been lumped onto the midfield, and somebody like Jake Livermore will just boot it down the pitch, and it will just end up in the goalkeeper's arms. A Snodgrass, it was just so nice to see obviously livermore's got the experience but snodgrass being a more attacking player and obviously formerly an attacking midfielder or a winger if you like just put, putting his foot on the ball and just just looking up and just just taking more care over the play it was very nice to see so yeah a few tactical tweaks in there and i can potentially see that happening again on uh, on saturday against against yourselves
1: there's a lot of experience in your side, um, your, your team a bit like Fulham's really has stayed fairly consistent from the Premier League back down to the championship and there are several players in there that I thought had decent enough seasons, um, as decent as a season you, you can ever have when finishing in the relegation zone, the likes of Ajay, Bartley, um, obviously Carlin Grant didn't have the greatest time in the Premier League, but he's come back firing. Who are the key players that, that make this West Brom team tick?
3: I think I'd I'd, fir- I'd probably say Alex Mowat but he's he's unlikely to be available so I, I won't pick him but a player I, I've been really surprised by his development really is Connor Townsend uh, who, who's been playing in a left wing back sort of position for us last season he was he was just about first choice the season he came in I think uh, when we when we came down that first time after having Alan Pardew as our manager and he came in for I think £800,000 from Scunthorpe United which was a a, a, a really weird signing at the time but he came in as a backup for Kieran Gibbs and his development going through the first team and he looks like sort of captain material for us at the moment flying down that left wing putting in the crosses that that really do make us quite dangerous and sliding those balls down the side of the defence for people like Carlin Grant to, or Callan Robinson to, to latch onto it's He's, he's such an important player for us and he's really underrated and underappreciated, I think, by a lot of West Brom fans and especially in that game against Bristol, he was he was fantastic. So I think he's, at the moment, probably our most important player, but in goal, Sam Johnston, a player that I was baffled that somebody like Arsenal when they're looking for a goalkeeper didn't snatch up for £10 million. I thought that would be an absolute bargain for them. Uh, he's He's been great in goal as well, playing a more sweeping sort of role outside the backline, as I'm sure some of you may may have seen for England. I think, yeah, he's been been fantastic and I wouldn't be surprised to see him get a move away to the Premier League in January certainly.
1: He's had uh, an interesting time at Craven Cottage Sam Johnston Uh, obviously he got lobbed in that game in the championship uh, a couple of seasons ago and when he played for Villa uh, he also got um, uh, conceded a goal from the halfway line because he spooned a free kick so um, (laughs) he hasn't got the best record at Craven Cottage Sam Johnson so uh, probably about time that he uh, has an absolute heroic display on Saturday and keeps a a clean sheet how do you see this match going then Uh, second versus third I think it's well documented that the championship is fairly weak this season and it's going to be ourselves, yourselves, Bournemouth. I guess maybe Sheffield United might come into it if they pick up their form, but they don't look like doing that. It's seeming like it's going to be three of us fit into two. You never know. It can be unpredictable, but it's probably felt like the the least predictable championship in, in in many a year. So how do you see this game going? You've obviously faced Bournemouth, so this is your second of the kind of big three uh, this side of, of Christmas. So what are you expecting from the match?
3: I'm really excited for it but also with that kind of massive nervous feeling because it is a huge game in the championship I mean you know as you mentioned there's probably three or four sides that you just you get anxious about facing we've played obviously Bournemouth and Sheffield United so far and you guys are really the, the last one until we head into that second half of the season that we're really quite nervous about playing because I don't think we've got a great record against you either I don't think we've We've beaten you since something like 2013 or something along those lines. So it's not been a, not been a great, great story going to Craven Cottage over the years. But I think um, going into the game, I think obviously you guys play some, some very nice football and have, have still got, as you mentioned, a lot of those players that were in the Premier League with you last season where obviously you had that great, that, that, that run. Uh, I think towards March sort of time where you where you won quite a few games on the bounce where you looked like you might be end up ending up staying up, but I think yeah I think it's going to be an interesting game. I think it's going to be one that we're going to have to try and employ the high press for and try and employ a more direct style of play. That typical vowel ball I think is going to have to be pulled out the bag for this one because obviously I know that you guys are going to like to pass the ball and and play. Uh play the the more traditional sort of style of play when a side comes down from the championship. I think we 're playing quite a weird style of play for a team that has got one of the best squads in the championship but yeah high pressing and more direct style of football I think compared to what we saw against Bristol because I think technically I think you you guys are much better than us, so I think're gonna have to sort of employ those more direct and and pressing tactics in this one but it's it's going it's definitely shaping up to be a very exciting clash.
1: Yeah, I, I'm. I'm nervous just because I don't know what <laughs> West Brom are going to bring. I like a. I'm just, I just. Don't, I don't exactly know what style of football as you say it's probably going to be direct it's probably going to be very very physical and yeah hopefully we can cope with it we faced Cardiff 10 days ago and we did just about deal with the kind of aerial bombardment of Cardiff but there was a few points in the second half where it was a little bit touch and go so and I imagine that you guys are going to be like Cardiff but at 10 times better uh, I, I imagine we can expect to see some long throws uh, you scored six from set pieces and three own goals this season you, you and, and obviously your second goal against Bristol was, was uh, a classic Kyle Bartley flick on from a massive long throw so uh, yeah I guess is that almost 100% certain we're going to see a few of those launched into the penalty area at the cottage
3: yeah the best advice I can give to Marco Silver is just to have somebody sort of just marking that edge of the six yard box closest to where the throwing's being taken just to stand there because nobody seems, not many teams have done it so far this season. And that's where Bartley, he starts at the back post and he comes around and he tries to get that flick on and it just causes havoc, but nobody tends to stand in that position. So he just sort of walks freely round to that side unchallenged, like he was sort of against Bristol, gets caught between two men, gets a free header and scores. So if I'm to give Marco Silva any advice, which I, I don't think I should really be doing, but I think, yeah, it'd be to just stick a man on that the edge of that six-yard box. But I certainly think that long throws are going to come into it at some point. I think we've been mixing it up a little bit, playing some shorter throws and sort of just trying to catch the opposition out and things like that. But it's definitely, at least once or twice in this game, there'll be a Darnell Furlong uh, long throw coming, coming into the Fulham box. And obviously, I, you guys are relatively strong in the air, so I can see you, you you dealing with it well, and I'm sure Marco Silva will have you well set up for them. I, I'm sure you won't make the same mistake as Sheffield United, who I think got done by two of them in that in our game against them. So, yeah, he will be uh, definitely something that we'll look to incorporate. It's just whether you guys can sort of handle Matt Clark, Bartley, and Ajay coming up from the back, really.
1: Yeah, I'm fascinated. I think I feel like we'll be OK, but there will be a couple of sketchy moments. There's been a few times this season um, that we've we've nearly got away with it, but just not quite. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. And just finally, how do you see the rest of the season going? Do you think it's going to be the, the same top three that are there now? And do you think the West Brom will make that top two?
3: I definitely think it will be the top three. Uh, I've got a little sneaky feeling that we're going to have a pr- pretty bad patch probably around Christmas time. And that's just me with my little crystal ball trying to sort of make out how the season's going to go. But I think, yeah, I think we're going to have a little bit of a dip around Christmas time. I've I've just got a bit of a feeling that that's going to happen with the sort of trying to play this direct and physical brand of football. It's going to lead to injuries and we've we've coped by the looks of things with Moat and Livermore being being out and suspended. I just think that at some point, more injuries are going to come particularly in those wing back areas and I'm not sure we've got the depth in, in those areas to to cover that but in terms of promotion and and potential automatic promotion I think we'll finish just inside but I, I couldn't call it between I think either one of you or Bournemouth is going to storm away in the, at the top of the championship and one of you is going to probably battle it out with us for se- for second place. But I'll say that we'll finish second because I, I can s- hear the Albion fans with their pitchforks outside my house right now if I say that we're going to finish third. But no, I think that one, one of you or Bournemouth will definitely storm away with the league. At the moment, I think it looks like Bournemouth, but obviously so many games left to go and, and quite unpredictable at the moment. But the, the spots below us are certainly very tight so you know you could see one of the teams you know like Coventry just just slip into that into one of those positions yeah it's going to certainly be interesting heading into the heading into the Christmas period of the, of this season
1: uh, Louis are you heading to the game on
3: Saturday I won't be unfortunately but I, I will certainly be, be cheering on for cheering on from my sofa but no I'd love to do Fulham as an away day but they sold out the tickets like that so yeah we'll have to see how this one goes from the sofa unfortunately but yeah I'm sure it'll be a fantastic
1: game Well, Louis, thank you for being on Fulhamish. No problem, mate. Pleasure, pleasure. Well, thank you very much to Louis. Uh, I feel like he's got nervous optimism going into Saturday's match. Uh, And he talked about, Jack, how he feels like West Brom have kind of manoeuvred between playing possession-ish football under Ishmael and just the really direct physical approach and he is certain that that's the method that West Brom are going to adopt on Saturday because he feels like West Brom won't be able to match Fulham's quality on the ball do you think Fulham are prepared to deal with the bombardment that's going to come in from West Brom on Saturday I felt like we We didn't really deal with it brilliantly against Cardiff, even though we got the job done. There were a few, as you put them earlier, harem scaring moments.
2: I mean, not huge amounts, though, although, you know, it's worth pointing out quite early on that West Brom are a much better side than Cardiff City. who You know, have got on to sack their manager. Yeah, you know, after this. So it, it is that I mean, look, there's there's a slight difference in that. Yes, West Brom are relatively big and have some physical players, but they're not also a load of giants, right? Yes, there are, they've been causing kind of havoc in the in the box with their um, with the with the long throws, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, this is a, a front three that includes Callum Robinson, the real CR7, um, Carlum Grant, Matt Phillips. Like they're not six foot eight lumps of men in the way that we saw Cardiff employ, right? Or even Middlesbrough at the start of the season. So there is kind of some level of this that I go, yes, OK, a really direct, aggressive approach might dissuade Fulham. And it might. I and mean, That's not me saying that this is 100 percent going to work. Um, but also I'm a little bit less kind of worried by their aerial bombardment as I was against Cardiff. And I, I think there is a level of being able to you know, try and deal with that potentially the pace in this front line could get in behind us. That's something that we've got to consider, but ultimately we've dealt with that to a point. Well, you know, as well, we, they lost to Swansea a couple of weeks ago. That was a pretty easy task that when, when we went and beat Swansea and, but then again, they beat Bristol city where we, where we failed to. So, I think the West Brom will cause Fulham problems. I think they're going to go with this 3-4-3 shape that they've pretty much used through the entire season. And we've seen already that wingbacks can cause us problems. We've seen also that Fulham can take apart sides with wingbacks if they don't press properly, aka that QPR game. And so my point would be if Fulham can get the better of this game early on, I think we could We could really get, you know, get something big out of this and uh, get a result that look that the rest of the league looks at and goes, oh, okay wow. But if it ends up being tight and really, really kind of tense, then, yeah, of course, this Webb's prom side are are strong enough and direct enough and clever enough to nick a goal and and make sure there's a really sad afternoon on the Thames. Peter, we don't know what
1: the Fulham team news is yet. Kenny Tete came off the bench against forest. I feel like it wouldn't be a surprise to see him in the starting lineup. Then I guess it's just the questions over the likes of Chalabur Carvalho and, and Reed as to, as to who else gets in the team. Yeah. Um,
0: can't see can't have Dennis Adoy dropping up the team now. He's got such an important role from corners.
2: Yeah, exactly. I do he's feel, he's I gonna do play feel sorry. centre mid. He's gonna play centre mid just <laughs> yeah, screen. um, <laughs> he's just screen, screening him, everyone, screening Terry. Can,
1: can we bring him on NFL style just for the corners? Special you know, team like, Adoy. Special team. <laughs> I'd love to see it. Yeah.
0: Um, it'll be really interesting to see what Marcus Silver does in midfield. Um, I expect it to be far more balanced than, um, than what we saw against forest with Harrison Reed available, obviously he was on the bench last week, uh, and depending what the final fitness is, I'm sure we'll find out a bit more, uh, before the weekend. Um, but then yeah, the, the other big question is Fabio Carvalho. I mean, he's should be past his COVID, um, isolation period over his toe injury. So by all, by all accounts, that should mean he's back in contention. So. Uh, we'll see what Marco Silva says this week on him. Um, it'd be an interesting question because with Tom Kearney available, there's some real competition in that position anyway. Um, but we've, we've seen the quality he has and, uh, he's certainly been missed. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's how you deal with, with, as Jack was outlining, West Brom's high press. Uh, I agree with him. I think it's a game that Fulham can call, cause them real problems, but at the same time, they can cause Fulham real problems as well, which doesn't tell you too much. But it doesn't mean I'm expecting quite an exciting game. I'd be really surprised if it's tight and tense. Um, I feel like a direct style can suit Fulham. And I actually think the biggest thing will be the intensity of the game, um, where Fulham have not been at it, is when they've, where they've dropped intensity, where a game has lacked tempo. I can't see that happening on Saturday lunchtime. And if that means Fulham are having to play at full hill, full till for most of the game, I imagine they'll do very well in that and thrive when when that comes to pass. But again, it depends on how effective West Brom are in their very, very unique, direct style of football.
1: Yeah, I'm feeling hopeful ahead of Saturday and and I think it's would be such a massive, massive, massive win. I think you open up that little bit of a cushion. Um To West Brom. There's a couple of games remaining to the the end of the international break. I think this can really put Fulham on course if we can get three points. It would be four wins in a row. I think a draw only helps Bournemouth really when you look at the table. It's way too early to be doing much scrutiny on the table, but a four point cushion to West Brom would be a lovely, lovely position to be in. And, and as you say, I hope that a big game West Brom's high press does suit us. I imagine Marcus Silva will be drilling into the players to keep the ball moving quickly and that we do have the quality to beat even a press of West Brom's standard.
2: It's going to be high tempo. It's going to start fast. We can't go under the quash early, but this midfield duo, Robert Snodgrass and Jason Malumbi, right? You can pass through that midfield. And, you know, you don't want them on the ball. They're both decent ball players. Malumbi is a good player that gets around the pitch and he's done good things for the Republic. But ultimately, I think you're looking at this as a side that Fulham can beat if we get on the ball and and, and control the game. And if you can get John Mikel into the right positions at the bottom of that base, he's going to be absolutely fine and we'll be able to pick our way through them. But if they start fast and and put us under the cosh early doors, the last thing we want is this Fulham mentality going again. Obviously, it's nice to know that of, of late, we've been able to battle through these things. But on the whole, you know, if you can get a hold of this game and really start to get into it, I think Fulham could can, can get this done.
1: Brilliant. All right. Well, we'll see what happens on Saturday. 1230 kickoff. Not normally a fan. It was quite good against QPR. Maybe the weather helps. It's not ideal, but we've got to get up for it no matter what. And it's a massive, massive game, which uh, I'm sure we'll manage to up, blow off the uh, early morning cobwebs that, that we might have to deal with. And yeah, fingers crossed we can get the results. Thank you to my guest today, Jack Collins. Thank you, Sammy. And thank you, Peter Rutzler. Thank you, Sammy. I will be back uh, Sunday evening slash Monday morning to do a review of that massive West Brom game, looking ahead uh, to Blackburn in the week next week. But until then, come on,
2: whites. You whites! You whites! <laughs>